Our mission, if you're wondering what we're about at this church, we're about helping people find and follow Jesus. We want people that don't know Jesus to come to know Jesus and then live their life for King Jesus. We're going to continue in our series. We've been calling this series, How God Makes Bad Men Good, the book of Romans. And so if you don't know what the book of Romans is about, it's about the imputed righteousness of Christ. Not that we're good, because we're not. The Bible teaches there's nothing good in, in, in mankind. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But when we place saving faith in Jesus, his righteousness is imputed to us. It's not anything we did. It's all about what Christ did. So that being said, we're going to continue in this series. Now we're coming to Romans chapter 14. So if you brought your Bibles, open to Romans chapter 14. We're going to be in verses 1 through 12, a sermon I'm calling the gray area of Christianity. I'm going to make some statements. I got four statements here. I'm going to make them. You just have an opinion. Keep opinions to yourself because uh, I know some people got some opinions on that. What you think about this. Here, here's a, here's an, a statement. Statement is this, a Christian has the right to drink alcohol as much as they want to. Anyone that says different hasn't read the Bible. And just, just think that to yourself. How about this? Here's one. God wants us to be vegan. God doesn't want us to eat meat at all. I'm sure we have some very hard feelings on that one. I know I do. But just keep that to yourself. How about this? Christian parents need to homeschool their children. Anyone that allows public school system to educate their children isn't following the Bible. I'm going to get to why I'm, why I'm saying this. So just one more. A church worship time needs to be very formal. Singing from a hymnal is the only appropriate system of worship, and it's the only, other, only form of worship that's pleasing to God. Now, what I just said there, by and large, is largely false. There's kind of a sprinkling of truth there. But if you think about it, I could turn around, I could say the exact opposite of what I just said and still be wrong, Right? You see, what happens is that there are statements that are made by Christians, and really these are just Christians with a critical heart. There are so many Christians that they believe that they have the spiritual gift of criticism. But there is no spiritual gift of criticism. You just have a critical heart. And really when somebody does this, they, 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 somebody says something, they disagree with that, and so they just have this critical heart. They're being legalists. And legalism can come in all sorts of form, both, both positive and negative. But what happens is, okay, again, there's a, a person that thinks differently of them, and so they just feel their, their need to, to just impose their, their, their beliefs on them, when really it's not anything we should be like contradicting each other on. Now, I'm not suggesting we do the old judge not. I'm sure you've heard that a million times. Oh, judge not, least ye be judged, right? That's the mantra of the liberal Christian. And it's weird how they always quote that in the old King James. I find that funny. But anyways, um, I thought that'd be funnier. I got one laugh right here. Thank you. But what they, they say that because there's something they want to do, whatever it may be. And so they, they throw out that that's my trump card. I can do this. God's going to approve of it. God's going to put his stamp of approval on anything I want to do. Now, there are some things that God said, hey, don't do that. And there's some other things that God has said, make sure you do that. But there's a lot of things that we have liberty to do if we choose to do. And I'm calling these things the gray area of Christianity. And again, if someone wants to live their Christian life differently than than some other Christian, again, we have the freedom in Christ to do so. But I want to be crystal clear because I don't want somebody to come up to me after service and say, wow, what about this? There are some things we aren't to do. And again, there are some things they are to do. But if whatever we're debating about, if it's not the difference between heaven and hell, then let's not major on that. 
Look what Paul says about this. Romans 14, beginning in verse 1. He says, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. But do not quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God welcomes him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of uh, of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. Here's my first point. Point number one for us this morning. Keep the main thing the main thing. Okay, keep the main thing, the main thing. Here, Paul is distinguishing between two groups. He's calling it the weak and the strong. And we're going to see later in this chapter that Paul identifies himself with the strong. You see, the Christian that's strong, they, they, under, they understand the entirety of the Bible. And they live their life accordingly. Okay, they, they, they understand that they have freedom in Christ to, to live how they choose to live. But at the same time, they don't abuse those freedoms. And I just caution you, be very careful to label yourself as one of the strong. Because Paul might come back and go, no, really, you're one of the weak. Paul mentions believers that are weak. And these weak believers, there are people that, that feel and think that if you abstain from certain foods, somehow that, that makes you stronger. Well, that's not the case. If you really read this, this is just something I wonder about. If you read this, it's almost like in the first four, 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 first four verses. Say that ten times fast. It's hard to say. First four verses, it's almost like Paul's saying this is no big deal. I read this and it's like Paul has this not a big deal type attitude. Later in this chapter, he's going to come really hard on this. But right now, it's, it seems like he's playing it a little soft. If we were to go back in our Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 10, we would read about the apostle Peter. And Peter, he has this vision from God, this vision of a sheet descending from heaven, and there's all sorts of of animals. They're unclean animals. And the sovereign God of the universe tells the apostle Peter, hey, rise, kill, and eat. And then Peter tells the supreme ruler of the universe, no. Anybody else grabbed by that? I'm like, and then then God says, hey, Peter, no, go ahead and kill and eat. Make a bacon sandwich. And and Peter says, no, a second time. And so God has to tell him a third time before he finally does it. So anyways, the point was that Christians can eat whatever they want to eat. That there's no more kosher laws anymore. But here in Romans chapter 14, Paul has this like laissez-faire type attitude when it comes to people that are having this holier-than-thou type attitude on what to eat and what not to eat. Here's what I want in my humanness as I read this. I want Paul to go hardline on this. I want Paul to say, hey, knock this off. He's going to do it later in this text. But right now, he's, 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 he doesn't do that. I want Paul to get all fire and brimstone on people that are just being hardline legalists. But that's not what Paul does. And here's why I think Paul is being soft on this issue right now. It's because by addressing this the way he does, he's actually dr- addressing the strong Christian. Or those that call themselves strong. Okay? The, the strong are the ones that don't have an issue with what to eat or what not to eat. It's the weak that are having an issue with what they should or shouldn't eat. So what Paul is doing, he's very, being very pastoral here. You, so even though Paul understands that the Bible permits eat anything, he really doesn't focus on that all in these first four ver- verses. And that's surprising to me. 
And that wasn't Paul's point. Well, then, then what is Paul's point? Paul's point is this. Stop fighting and fussing over stuff that doesn't matter. That's Paul's point. Stop fighting and stop fussing over stuff that doesn't matter. You see, often in Christianity, we really like to major on minor points. And I have to say that maybe Southern Baptists are the world's heavyweight champs of majoring on minor points. Now, there are some issues that we need to focus on. We need to be laser-focused on certain issues, issues that we're going to hold with a closed fist, issues that we are willing to die for. When we consider doctrine, we need to triage doctrine. You know, not all doctrine is important as other in, in, in important doctrine, okay? There, there's something that we, like I said, hold with a closed fist. We are willing to die for, stuff like the deity of Christ. We're not going to budge on that one. Uh, the means of salvation, uh, the virgin birth, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ and others, that's not an exhaustive list. These are subjects that we have to be willing to die for. But not all issues are closed fist issues, right? There's issues that we don't hold with a closed fist. I mean, think of like the mode of baptism. Is the mode of baptism important? Yes, that's very important. Okay, But is it as important as the deity of Christ? No, it's not. Maybe you're somebody that wants to debate everything to the nth degree. I'll say this. Can a person that was sprinkled go to heaven? Well, if your answer is yes, well, then let's not fight over it. Let's not split a church over an issue that doesn't really matter. Do you hold to a pre-tribulation rapture or a post-tribulation, post-tribulation rapture? I personally hold to a pre-tribulation rapture, and I can talk to you for the next several hours of why I believe that. But again, let's not split a church over that. I belong to a, a Facebook group for Southern Baptist pastors, and, and they're always posing questions. There's a discussion on there, and I asked a question. I asked for instances in their pastoral ministry where somebody majored on a minor point, and it really ended up hurting people. Um, there was some, some, some kind of funny answers. There were some humorous answers, but some were really sad when you really read about what happens when you major on a minor issue. There was a typical answer about somebody that, that really holds to the King James Version is the only inspired text. As if the Apostle Paul was writing in 15th century English when he wrote Romans. No, he wasn't. He was writing in Greek. The Greek was later translated to Latin. It's called the Latin Vulgate. And then the, the Latin was translated to what we consider the, the old King James Version of the Bible. So one pastor told this story. He says that a member of his congregation had, had volunteered to buy a hundred Bibles to be sent to a missionary in Mexico to, to be used to share the, the gospel in Mexico. And when the individual found out that it's not the King James Version, he pulled his donation. I'm like, people in the middle, middle of Mexico don't speak English, let alone King James Version English. I mean, that is sad how somebody majored on a minor point and it ends up hurting the gospel. I heard story of pastors that were fired because they went to the movies. Just the movies and you lose your job. Pastors that were fired because they drove foreign cars. There were stories in that, in that thread where the church members were dictating what the, wife, the pastor's wife could or couldn't do. One, one, one guy said that his wife wasn't allowed to mow the lawn. How, how, how she had to cook every single meal. Here's what I'll say to that. Mind your business, people. Mind your business. That's not your, your job. And the stories like that are endless. 
What happens when someone draws a hard line that has absolutely zero bearing on the kingdom of God? Do you know what happens? The kingdom of God is hurt. So here's what we do. If the word of God is silent on an issue, then we stay silent on an issue. You can have your opinion, but don't force your opinion on, on, onto somebody the Bible, that the Bible is silent of. Because the Bible has enough commands for us to follow for, before there's some committee that comes together and comes up with five new commands for us to learn. And I can hear the comments now. I can almost hear somebody saying, yeah, Pastor John, but what's wrong with now enter what's something that you want to major on? What's wrong with, with telling kids they can't wear hats in the sanctuary? Well, I know what you're trying to do. We're trying to, we're trying to teach young people respect by telling them to not wear a hat in a, in, a, in, a, in a sanctuary. But when we major on an issue like that, it ends up hurting those, the, the weak, as Paul is saying here. There is only one reason we should offend people. One reason we should offend people. We should offend people with the gospel. Because the gospel is very offensive. To hear a message that we're all sinners. Every single one of us. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. That's offensive. And that our sin, it separates us from a holy, perfect God. That's offensive. And that there's absolutely nothing you can do to try to bring you in a right relationship with God. That's offensive. There's nothing you can do. No amount of good works. The Bible says the best thing that you or I can do in the eyes of a holy God is like a giant pile of filthy rags. That's offensive. But then Jesus, he's God. He's God come in the flesh. That's offensive. And that he is the way. He is the truth and he is alive. And he will save somebody by his grace through faith. That's offensive because in our humanness, we want to add something to the gospel. There's something I call the Wyoming way here. You know, if you do something really nice for me, I have to do something nice for you. Well, salvation, clearly I have to add something to it. I have to be a good person and then God will save me. No, that's offensive. Do I contribute to salvation? Yes, I do. I did all the sinning and Jesus does all the saving. You see, the gospel is offensive to the lost. And this is what Paul is saying. He's like, don't add anything to it. Don't make it more offensive by some secondary issue that you want to major on. I mean, we can and we should talk about alcohol use and alcohol abuse. How alcohol can and it will hurt people if you engage in those things. We should talk about that. We should talk about sexual sin. How sexual sin leaves somebody with scars after the fact. We should address a thousand different issues. But if it isn't the difference between heaven and hell, let's not major about it. It's not major on that issue. This is, this is what Paul is not speaking about. He's also not saying that everything's okay. Paul's not saying that. Paul's not saying that any way you want to live your life, that's perfectly fine. There is a religious doctrine of America today, and it is the American culture of tolerance. And they'll say that, well, if you love somebody, you're going to tolerate them, and tolerate them is saying that everything they want to do is okay. Now, anything and everything that a person wants to do, you have to put your stamp of approval on it in the name of tolerance. Now, there is some good elements of that. Respecting, loving, accepting. That is very uh, not hating. That, that's a good thing, right? But our culture, where they go wrong is they say, whatever you want to believe, that's okay. Believe in this God. Believe in that God. Believe in this moral. Not believe in that moral. That's all okay. No. 
We're never going to say that's okay. You know, ironically and hypocritically, the one thing that is not tolerated in that religion is to tell somebody the wrong. It's a religion that is absolutely against absolutes. Weird, huh, right? It is so weird that they're absolutely against absolutes about not having absolutes. Really weird when you sit and really see how that plays out. Also, Paul's not talking about personal righteousness here. Personal righteousness is where we choose to abstain from some act because it hurts us. If we go back to Romans chapter 1, Paul has said very clearly, there are some things that hurt you. And if you choose to participate in those acts, you're going to have very real negative consequences through your poor choices. Paul's also not saying that we shouldn't try to assess someone's salvation. Paul's not saying we shouldn't try to the best of our ability to determine if someone is saved. Is someone going to heaven or if they're not? You know why we do that? Because we treat saved people differently than we do unsaved people. We expect a lot more out of somebody if if they're supposedly going to heaven. Peoples whose hearts have been redeemed by God's unmerited grace, we expect them to to act differently, and so thus we, we treat them differently. And those who are not going to heaven, we don't expect them to live in the light of God's amazing grace, right? We shouldn't be surprised when a non-Christian sins. You know what should shock us, though? When a Christian sins. That should shock us. So we can and we should have conversations about all sorts of issues. Like our convictions against, against alcohol or, or this food or that food. About schooling of our children. How to find a godly spouse. We should have those conversations. Also, Paul is not labeling every conversation about one another as judging. And he's not saying that if you just have a conversation, you're despising. That's not what he's saying. There was a 4th century individual by the name of Augustine that had a lot to say about this, this subject. And this is what he said about this. He said, quote, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. The essential things are the clear moral teachings that are at the heart of the gospel. That salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We must have unity in, in, the, in the, the essentials, right? These are the non-negotiables. And the non-essentials, that's everything else. The opinions about food or drink or special days, views on schooling your children, whether homeschooling, public schooling, Christian schooling, what type of car you, you're going to drive, how to find a spouse, do you believe in arranged marriages, I believe in arranged marriages, just so you know. That's, that's part of the deal. But anyways, we should have this attitude of liberty. We should have freedom in Christ to live however we choose, even if it's different than the Christian that sits next to you in church. And in all things, essential and non-essential, we show charity. We should love and not condemn. We shouldn't even criticize. We should welcome and accept one another. Here's something we should do. You ready for this? Try smiling. That would go a long ways, right? Sometimes Christians have the frowniest face. Really? They're like, oh, I love Jesus. Really, you do? It doesn't look like you do. I've been saved by his grace. Okay, if you say so. Here's what Paul says in Romans 12, 10. He says, outdo one another showing honor. Let's, but, let's do that. Keep reading. Look what Paul says next in verse 5. 
One person esteems one day as better than another, while another person esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in the honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in the honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Here's our second point for us this morning. Point number two. Live out your beliefs to its fullest. So in verses one through four, Paul is addressing food, and now he's addressing days. And he's most likely referring to the Jewish festivals. He might be um, referencing the Sabbath, but Paul doesn't precisely tell us. You see, how this plays out is that there's some Christians, they'll say, oh, these days are more holier than some other days. And there's some other group of Christians, they say, no, 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 every day is holy. But did you notice how Paul didn't say which view is correct? Paul didn't say, oh, the Christian that believes that that one day is holy, they're the one that's correct. Nor did Paul say, no, the Christian that says all days are holy, they're correct. Paul leaves us hanging when it comes to this issue, and I think he does that on purpose. What's the point? Paul does say, each one of you should be fully convinced in his own mind. Each one of us should be persuaded on what we think and then act in accordance to how, of how your conscience leads you. Whatever your view is on the, on the gray areas, do that. Because someone might say, oh, Easter Sunday, it's the holiest day of the year. That's definitely in the conversation. I, I, in my opinion, top two for sure. But then the next person comes along and says, no, no, no. Every single day, 24-7, 365, they're all holy. That guy's got a point too, right? Which one's right? Paul doesn't tell us. But I think that's the point. Be convinced in what you believe and then live your life accordingly. And then check this out. You ready? Maybe, maybe you need to write this down. Don't go out and force some other Christian to do exactly what you do. There is nothing more hurtful to the gospel than a hypocrite. Okay? If there's something you truly believe, then go out and live that out. Live by that, whatever it may be, and then don't force other Christians to live just like you do. As a pastor, I've done, I don't know how much marriage counseling. I've had couples come to me time and time again. A lot of times I get my, my wife involved. A lot of times couples come to us about an issue that's not exactly spelled out in black and white in the Bible. So this is what I do. I tell them what I think about an issue. My wife can share what she thinks about an issue. And then we tell them about how we have handled similar situations in, in, in our marriage. But in the end, what's best for us might not be what's best for them. When my wife and I first got married before kids, we both had jobs and we both worked. And then there came a time where I went to seminary. So when I went to seminary, I stayed at home with the kids while she kept working. And then when I, when I graduated seminary, I got a job at a church and she quit working so she could be at home with the kids. And then when the kids got a little older and more self-sufficient, she went back to work. And you know what? That worked for us. But that might not work for the, for the next Christian. Okay. I'm using this as a, as an illustration to tell how much of life is, especially the Christian life. We need to pray about a situation. And if you're married, you need to come together with your spouse and pray together, okay? And then you need to come to a conclusion. And when you come to a conclusion, that's what you need to do, okay? Often in Scripture, there's no clear-cut direction. But whatever you do, do it for the Lord. 
And if somebody makes a decision or lives their lives differently than, than you do, here's what you do. Mind your business. Maybe you should write that one down. Keep reading. Look at verse number 7 of Romans chapter 14. Paul says, For none of us live to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Here's my third point for us this morning. Point number three, a Christian belongs to Jesus. In this text, Paul is telling us exactly why we need to stop condemning each other. Why we need to, to, to stop trying to live our lives through somebody else. Why we need to have our own convictions and not impose our convictions on others. And by convictions, I'm talking about the gray areas of Christianity. Paul's reason is this. He says, I don't live for myself. I don't even die for myself. Because I belong to the Lord. That's what Paul said. In fact, that needs to be the heartbeat of every single Christian. Okay? Paul says we're not our own masters. We are not free to regulate our own life. We belong to Jesus. He's our master. Okay? If we live, if we die, we should be doing so to do his will. And so in verses 7 and 8... Paul really summarizes God's purpose for our life. To live for Christ and to to live for Christ alone. That's the purpose of the Christian life. You see, it's not about us. Our life should be all about Jesus. We live for him. We die for him. He is the very meaning of our life. Look back in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. This is what Paul has earlier said. He said, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers... By the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You see, in the view of the grace and the mercy that God has given to you because he sent his son to die on a cross in your place because of your sins. And then if he he saved you from eternal hell, the only logical application that you could come to is to live your life for him. Because he died for you, you need to live for him. Look how Paul said it to the church in Galatia, in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Paul says, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Can you hear why Paul does what he does? It's not about him. It's all about Jesus. Why? Because apart from Christ, we were all dead men and women walking. We were all going to hell. We were all doomed. We were destined to spend eternity in hell separated from God. But God loved you so much that he sent his one and only son to die in our place and then raise from the grave. And if we believe that, we're going to be made alive forever. That we're destined to spend eternity in heaven because of what Jesus did? Because of this, we own our lives, right? We belong to Jesus. He's our master. So it's not our right, nor is it our place, to determine what we do and what we don't do. This is what we should do. We should look to our master and say, what would you have me do, Lord? What, do, what am I supposed to do in this situation? Whatever it is, that's what I'm going to do because you call the shots. This is where we tell King Jesus, my life is a blank check. Cash it however you choose. But then, you know what we need to do? 
We need to apply this to our Christian friends. We need to apply this to the person who sits next to us in church because my fellow believer, they belong to Jesus too. That means they don't belong to me. I'm not that Christian's master. King Jesus is his master. I am not the supreme God of the universe. So you know what I should do? Stop trying to dictate their life. It is not my place, nor it is your place, to put laws over Christians that God did not put on them. So what we need to do is we need to back off demanding that everybody just run with the same regulations that you put on yourself. Here's an example. Maybe you have decided for your life you're only going to watch G movies. Movies that rated you, you say, that's all I'm going to watch. If that's you, God bless you. But if the next person wants to watch PG-13, God bless them too. Because your conscience is not their conscience, and their conscience is not your conscience, but the same Lord is the Lord overall. And King Jesus, he calls the shots. So stop trying to play the part of the second coming of Jesus on this earth. Keep reading, look in verse 9. Paul says, for to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or do you, or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment to see the Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Paul's saying, why are you passing judgment on the Christian next to you? Why are you doing that? Paul's saying, what gives you the right to do that? How dare you criticize some other Christian? Paul's hitting this very hard. He says, for we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Did you know this? You're going to stand before God, and I'm going to stand before God. We're all going to stand before God, and we're going to give an account of our life. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. He is the master. He is the ruler. He has all authority. I'm not the Lord. You're not the Lord. So let's stop trying to live, run somebody else's life like we're the Lord. Read what Paul said to the church in Corinth about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3. Paul says, but with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am, I, I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things that are hidden in the darkness and will disclose the purpose of the heart. Then each one will receive his, con- his condemnation from God. This is so powerful. Please don't miss this. Because Paul is saying, hey, it doesn't matter if you judge me because I don't even judge myself. Paul says, it's the Lord that's going to judge me. You're not going to judge me in the end. That's what Paul is saying there. He says, I don't even judge myself. So stop condemning other Christians because they think differently than you do on some secondary issue. You're going to stand before Jesus one day. And he's going he's gonna to judge you, the great and mighty just judge. And did you know this? Jesus knows all the secret things you've done. Everything. The things that only you know about, guess what? He knows about. He knows them all. Remember, he's writing to believers here. And here's something else, Jesus. Jesus knows the motives of your heart. And he will condemn the Christian or, or reward the Christian as he sees fit. 
And again, I'm not talking about black and white issues. I'm talking about the gray areas of Christianity. There was a book that was given to my wife when I first became a pastor. Our our pastor's wife gave my wife a book, and the book was called The Pastor's Wife. Amply named book, right? It was about. It was written by a gal named Gloria Furman, and in this book, she tells a story about being a pastor's wife and living in a parsonage that was next to the church. And one day, she was out. She's doing the wash, and she's taking the clothes out and she's putting them on on the on the line, specifically the towels. The next Sunday at church, a member of the church commented on how many towels she had on the line, saying, "Man, twelve towels is a lot of towels for a family your size." And she thought. They're counting my towels. How about this? Instead of counting how many towels another Christian is using, how about you go live your life for Jesus? How about you go spend the hours that the sovereign Lord of the universe gives you by feeding the hungry, to to clothe the needy, to give sick uh, medicine to those who are sick? And then while you're doing that, how about you open your mouth and share God's plan of salvation? Because Christians are going to be judged on what they did do and also what they didn't do. Not for salvation, because that's done at the moment of salvation. But how we will spend eternity in heaven, we will be judged on that. So let me give you some real life applications. I got this spelled out. Here's here's the first point of application. Application point number one. Stop fearing man and start fearing God. Right? Right? How often do we let what people think dictates what we do and don't do? Don't do that. Don't do that. What somebody thinks, it doesn't matter a hill of beans. The only opinion that matters is God. And his opinions are actually called facts. Okay? His, his, what God thinks is what the only thing that matters. So stop worrying what somebody else thinks. They're, they're one of my favorite skits of all time. It's called by, by not Bob Newhart. And it's called Just Stop It. Anybody seen it? I know you've seen anybody else. Okay, you got homework. Go home, YouTube, Bob Newhart, just stop it. And here's the, the crux of his, of his thing. Just stop it. Don't do that anymore. The man's opinions don't matter. But you know what does matter? God's opinion. So we should be worried about what he thinks. Here's number two. Number two application. Remember, God is your judge. Now live like it. You're not your own master. And the Christians sitting next to you, they're not your master either. But the opposite is true. He's not your master. God's your master. You have a master. His name is Jesus. And you're going to be judged on how you use the time that he gave you. So this is what you should do. Go live your life like the judgment of God is coming. Last week I preached on the last half of Romans chapter 13. Where Paul is trying to convince us beyond the shadow of a doubt. Jesus is coming back. And time is running short. There's going to come a day where you'll have no more days to tell people about Jesus. So live your time telling people about Jesus. Hey, let's say, for instance, your phone rang. Your phone rang and you pick up the phone and it's the president of the bank that you use. And the president of the bank has some great news for you. He says, hey, there's this anonymous donor that loves you very much that has decided to deposit into your bank account 86,400 pennies each and every morning. And maybe at first you're like, eh, it's just 86,000 pennies. Maybe, wait a minute, that's $864 every day. Seven days a week, 52 weeks a year, those pennies add up to over $315,000. Like, this sounds like a good deal now. But then the bank president adds on one thing. He says, quote, 
the anonymous giver said that you must spend all the money on that day that you receive it. No balance will be carried over to the next day. At the close of business each day, the bank must cancel whatever sum you failed to use. Remember, you don't spend it, you lose it. And that might sound like a fairy tale, but here's the reality. Each morning, somebody that loves you very much deposits to your bank, bank of time 86,400 seconds, which represents 1,440 minutes. And over the course of day, that's of the day, that's 24 hours. God gives you that much time to use each day, and no amounts can be carried over to the next day. There's no such thing as a 27-hour day. It's called time. You can't escape it. The truth is, our time is ticking away. And every day, we are one day closer to when Jesus is going to come back. The Bible tells us to redeem the time, make sacred, wise use of the time that God gives you. Here's my third point of application. Point number three, stop forcing your convictions concerning gray areas on others. Just stop it. Stop running like you are the the God that's running the universe. Jesus said you should love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. If that is how we should treat our enemies, how should you treat your brother and sister in Christ? Now, we we can and we should have conversations about stuff we disagree with. But in the end, let's leave it to the individual. You still have freedom and even the responsibility to have conversations about one another, about areas that aren't exactly spelled out in Scripture. About what foods to eat, whether or not to drink alcohol, how to spend your money, what type of music to listen to. We should encourage about having those, uh, those conversations and topics that, that, are, that really are, are kind of, we revolve our, our, our life around. But we need to always have those conversations seasoned with grace. And remember, your fellow believer doesn't belong to you. He or she belongs to Jesus. So quit trying to run him like you're their God. Here's my fourth and last point of application. Strive to be strong, not weak. Paul didn't say this explicitly in this text, but I think it's implied. Paul mentions um, those that are weak in Romans chapter 14 in kind of a negative light. He, he, he says that, but what he says there, the point was that the action that's to occur is to happen to those who are strong. We need to be strived to be that well-informed Christian that understands and believes and, and knows what the Bible says and what the Bible doesn't say. Paul is not condemning the weak person in this passage. The weak person is the Christian that thinks one way or another on an issue that God's really silent on. Don't be the Christian that majors on the minor and then turn around and minors on the major. So I want to conclude this message on the major. What is the major? What is the main thing that we're supposed to keep the main thing? The main thing is the gospel. The gospel message is this, that you're wicked. I'm wicked. We're all wicked. And we are desperately separated from a holy, perfect God because of our sin. And there's nothing we can do. No amount of going to church. No amount of of tithing. No amount of doing something good. Feeding the home. It will never make us right in the sight of God. All of religion is like a ladder, and we've got these rungs on the ladder. The problem is God is too, too far above. We will never make it. You know what we need? We need God to come to us. We need God to come to us and then make a way for him. Well, he did. We celebrated every Christmas. It's when Jesus came. 
Jesus is God. And before the foundations of the world, he knew he was come. The the redemption plan was, was God coming for us, that he would robe himself in human flesh and come. And knowing the cross was before him the whole way, Jesus was scourged. And then he stretched out his hands and he allowed evil men to kill him. Brutally murdered. Buried in a tomb and rose again on the third day. The Bible says, whoever calls in the name of the Lord, they will be saved. You know what that means? It doesn't matter how bad you are. The worst thing you can imagine, Jesus paid for that sin. The Bible says, but yet while we're still sinners, Christ died. It's not that we cleaned ourselves up and then came to Jesus. Jesus came when we were neck deep in sin. And if you call on him, you will be saved. For most, it's a simple prayer. To say something like, dear God, I'm a sinner. And my sin separates me from you. But yet you love me so much you came and you paid the price for my sin. I give you my life. Save me from my sin. I pray this in the precious name of Christ. Amen.